Well, good morning again. Turning your Bibles this morning to Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. It's on page 813 of the Bible underneath your seat. Now, this week, I read a story about Christian Herder, the governor of Massachusetts in the 1950s. And during Herder's campaign for a second term in office, he made a stop, a campaign stop at a local church barbecue. It was the afternoon and Herder hadn't had anything to eat all day. As he moved down the serving line, he held out his plate to the woman serving the chicken. She put a piece on his plate and turned to the next person in line. Excuse me, Governor Herder said. Uh, do you mind? If I have another piece of chicken. I haven't eaten anything all day long. Sorry, the woman told him. I'm supposed to give one piece of chicken to each person. But I'm starved, the governor said. Sorry, the woman said again. Only one person. Now, Governor Herder was typically uh, a modest man, but this time he decided he was going to throw away, throw around his weight a little bit. And he said, do you know who I am? I am the governor of this state. The woman responded, do you know who I am? I'm the woman in charge of the chicken." Move along. Friends, who actually has the authority makes all the difference in the world. This morning, we resume our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We left off in December of last year. Matthew is a collection of Jesus' words and his works written by Matthew, a former tax collector from Capernaum, whom Jesus called to be his disciple. We left off last December after chapter 7, concluding Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we pick up today again in chapter 8. Friends, from the outset of his gospel, Matthew has driven home his main point repeatedly. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's saving promises made in the Old Testament. He wants us to see with crystal clarity that, that Jesus Christ is, is the fulfillment of God's promises to, to Abraham, to Moses, to King David, to the prophets about the new covenant. God's promises find their yes. They find their, their amen, as Paul wrote, in Jesus the King. And as such, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Notice the words at the end of Matthew 7. The last verse of Matthew 7, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. As the embodiment of God's rule, as the messianic king and the very son of God, the words that Jesus spoke, friends, were uniquely authoritative. And now as we move into to Matthew 8, Matthew shifts from the authority of Jesus' teaching to the authority of his works. Matthew 8 and 9 record 10 different miracles that showcase who Jesus is and what he came to do. But remarkably, even as Jesus' miracles demonstrate his authority over disease and death and the demonic realm and even nature itself, Jesus carries out these miraculous works by his authoritative word. Unlike the former governor of Massachusetts, the scope of Jesus Christ's authoritative domain is unlimited. While that type of limitless power might terrify us in an earthly king, it is the very thing that causes our hearts to sing about Jesus the Messiah. Because not only does his power know no boundary, neither does his mercy. 
So let's read together from Matthew 8. We're going to read the first 17 verses. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. That place, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother in law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word. And he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Friends, since this is the first time that we have encountered Jesus' miracles in the book of Matthew, I want to take a few minutes to help us think about these miraculous works of Jesus before we dive into the passage this morning. The synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, draw a straight-line connection between Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God and His miracles. Jesus announced in His preaching that the kingdom of God had arrived. And his, then His exorcisms and His healings and the raising of the dead and so on are intended to visibly prove that reality. Yes, indeed, the kingdom has arrived. In Jesus' miracles, we see flashes of the age to come breaking into this world of sin and death as Jesus rolls back the effects of the curse through His mighty works. You know, there's no question that the biggest obstacle for many people in accepting the Gospels as trustworthy is that they contain so many miracles. Miracles are impossible, they say. Therefore, the Gospels are un. Reliable. Maybe that's you here this morning. Friends, if you assume atheistic materialism, that, that physical things are all there is in this world, and that, that nothing can interfere with the laws that govern the world, then yes, miracles as the Bible presents them are nothing more than fairy tales. But the problem in your premise, or the problem with your, your conclusion is that your premise assumes your conclusion. You can't possibly examine evidence to the contrary because your starting point has already ruled it out. 
Admittedly, we Christians start from a different starting point. We don't hang our entire argument for the truth of Christianity on miracles alone, but we do believe in a different starting point. We believe the intricacy and wonder of the universe evidences a designer. You say that you don't believe in miracles. We say that your belief that living things rose spontaneously from non-living things is a pill equally hard to swallow. As is your conviction that conscious things sprang and evolved from non-conscious things. Beyond this, how this world came into existence, though, we see in the Bible, as Christians, we see in the Bible a realistic moral worldview that showcases how this world could be so full of glory and wonder and yet so full of suffering and brokenness. We see in the Bible a staggering coherence, despite the fact that it was written by 40 authors over thousands of years of world history. It tells one story. However, I acknowledge that, that miracles will seem more plausible if you've already convinced yourself that God exists, that He worked miracles in Israel's history in the Old Testament, that He prophetically promised a coming Messiah who would usher in His kingdom rule. But friend, I would ask you this morning as we study the word together, would you suspend your assumptions for a moment and think about the historical witness to Jesus's miracle work and ministry? Whether or not something happened in history should not be determined by what we think possible or likely, but by the reliability of the evidence. Here's the reality. As far back as we can trace Jesus was known and remembered as a man who had extraordinary power. There is almost universal agreement by both liberal and conservative theologians alike that Jesus was viewed by his contemporaries as a healer and as an exorcist. Let's just withhold the Gospels for a moment. The first century Jewish historian Josephus states that Jesus was a doer of startling deeds, probably referring to his miracles. The Babylonian Talmud, which was a polemic against Jesus and Christianity, claimed that Jesus was executed because he practiced magic and he led Israel astray. The early church leader Origen quotes his second century pagan opponent Celsus as claiming that Jesus worked certain magical powers that he had learned in Egypt. Now, does that prove that Jesus worked miracles? No but it absolutely confirms that he was widely acclaimed as a miracle worker from historically proximate sources, even among enemies to Christianity. And then there's the Gospels, written and compiled from eyewitness testimony of those who followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. These accounts show a shocking accuracy from the authors about the geography, let's say, for instance, of first century Palestine and the customs of the day and specificity of names and events. The Gospels show no obvious signs of hyperbole or fancy. And even if you want to peel away the miracles from the Gospels like layers of an onion, you still have to explain the origin of Jesus' sermons and his parables and so on. I would argue that based on the historical evidence, Jesus' miracles aren't just possible, they're plausible. They showcase the embracing of God's kingdom ushered in by the King himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. So friend, don't tune this sermon out. Learn from and behold the glory of the King. I think the main idea of our text this morning is this. 
the main idea of the text, which hopefully will be the main idea of the sermon, no one is beyond the reach of Jesus' power and mercy. No one's beyond the reach of Jesus' power and mercy. Friends, not only do we see the theme of Jesus' power and His authority in His mighty works, but we see in these miracles the common thread of His mercy toward the disadvantaged and toward the marginalized. Jesus healed a leper, He healed a Gentile, and He healed a woman. Three scenes, therefore, three points of the sermon this morning. Number one, compassion for the unclean. We see that in verses 1 to 4. Number two, hope for the outsider. It's in verses 5 to 13. Number three, healing for his people, verses 14 to 17. Friends, I pray that this snapshot of the king's ministry might call out our hearts this morning to worship him, to come to Jesus and to be made clean, to find hope and healing in his name. Number one, compassion for the unclean. In our, in our first scene in the text, Jesus encounters what Matthew calls a leper. Now, nowadays, the term leprosy describes a, a specific ailment called Hansen's disease. But in the ancient world, leprosy referred to different types of skin diseases. Some of them were curable and some of them weren't. The incurable types of leprosy were horrific and disgusting in the advanced stages of the disease. Because leprosy was, was highly contagious and no one knew how to cure it, the only treatment was quarantine. Lepers were to socially distance from other people. In the ancient world, lepers would often live together in colonies outside the city or the town. For the Jew, though, leprosy wasn't just a horrible physical malady. It meant social and religious ostracism. According to the law in Leviticus 13, leprosy was defiling. It made someone ceremonially unclean so that the leper was, was cut off entirely from the religious and social life of the community of Israel. Listen to Leviticus 13.45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! Friends, why did he, the leper have to shout that when others came close to him? It was not only to prevent the disease from spreading, but to also prevent that person from touching him or her, which would mean that other person would then be ceremonially unclean and would have to go through an elaborate process of purification and cleansing at the temple. This is why both the Old and the New Testaments refer to cured lepers, not just as being healed, but as being cleansed. The leper's greatest need wasn't healing, but cleansing in order to be able to participate again in the life and worship of the people of God. Friends, I hope that background helps you to understand how shocking it was that this leper in Matthew 8 ignored all of those social norms, all of those religious laws, to press through the crowds and fall at the feet of Jesus. This man would have been an outcast. People would have viewed him as toxic, as radioactive, as, as contagious physically, socially, and religiously. This leper's approach to Jesus in and of itself before he said a word was an act of faith. He had heard of Jesus' mighty works, no doubt, and he believed that Jesus could heal him. But we see in his his faith and his humble posture, don't we, before Jesus? He fell at his feet. How he talked to Jesus. Verse 2, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Not, Lord, if you're able. 
Not, Lord, if you're capable. Lord, if you're willing. For the leper, the issue in question was not Jesus' ability to heal, but his willingness. Would this one whom the crowds followed, who was renowned in Galilee, would he stoop to cleanse an outcast like him? Would he even care about the leper's plight? Or would he be like the rest of Jewish society, repulsed by his mere presence? The leper didn't presume that he deserved to be healed. And he certainly didn't presume that the man standing before him would want to heal him. Jesus' response includes some of the most beautiful words in the Bible, in my opinion. I will be clean. There's no doubt, friends, about the desire of Jesus Christ to restore and cleanse those whom seem the dirtiest to us, the most repulsive by human standards. Notice what Jesus did. He didn't stand off at a distance, did he? He didn't say, okay, you stay over there. Let's talk from six feet, ten feet apart. No, Jesus moved in. He extended his hand and he touched the leper. Jesus didn't want the leper to merely hear the impulse of his heart of compassion with his ears. He wanted him to feel his touch. Depending on how old this man was, it's possible that the first human touch this man had felt for decades was the hand of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think you would have heard an audible gasp ripple through the crowd. Jesus had just risked physical contamination and he had defiled himself according to their understanding. He had defiled himself ceremonially through the, uh, according to the Jewish law. Yet look what happened, friends. Jesus was not contaminated. The man's leprosy did not defile Jesus. Rather, Jesus' holiness overwhelmingly cleansed the leper. With his mere touch and his authoritative word, we see a flash of the new creation. Jesus' word and touch chase the leprosy away. Verse 3 says, immediately his leprosy was cleansed. No maintenance medication necessary, right? No remedial appointments. The leper was cleansed. Before Lindsay and I were married, I, I kept the grounds at the residence of a local businessman in Louisville, wealthy man, and I actually lived with this uh, man and his wife for the last three months before our, our wedding. And one of the things that I did at Ken and Joanne's property was I put black mulch down in the numerous beds around their property. As you can imagine, by the time I was done with that day-long pro project, I was filthy. The black powder that covered the mulch was all over my clothes and my hands and my shoes. Well, after one such all-day mulch project, uh, the day after, I think, Joanne uh, brought me into her dining room and she asked me if I knew anything about what was on her custom-made, ceiling-to-floor, exquisitely pristine white linen drapes. And I looked over and to my horror, as clear as day, a black smudge right in the middle of her $1,000 drapes. In my carelessness, I had, I had brushed up against the drapes as I walked by. I had stained them. There was nothing I could do, was there, short of buying her new drapes, which I clearly could not afford. 
Well, friends, I can't help but think, as I recall that illustration, as I thought about the leper appearing before Jesus, that's how many of us feel in relationship to God, isn't it? Perhaps you're here this morning and you fear there's nothing that can cleanse the blot of your soul. There's nothing that can undo the shame that you feel. Your memories are tormented by the stains of your past and the dirtiness of your present. You struggle to believe that God would want someone like you around. Well, friend, look at the movement of Jesus toward this leper. Listen to his words of compassion and desire. His heart throbs with mercy toward those who come to him by faith. The Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs put it this way. When Christ saw people in misery, in misery his bowels yearned within him. Whatever Christ did, he did it out of love and grace and mercy. He did it inwardly from his very bowels. Now, you and I don't use that language today, except in certain situations. But Sib's point is that Jesus' pity toward people like the leper wasn't a show. It wasn't an outward facade. He didn't move toward the leper begrudgingly as he turned his face away in revulsion at the sight of the man's grotesque appearance. No, he moved in because that's who he is. He's the king who's not only filled with power, but he is filled with a willing and eager compassion towards sinners and sufferers. The picture of Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not just one who loves, but one who is love. It's the essence of who he is. Perhaps you're here and like the leper, you carry with you the shame accumulated over years of experiences or an experience that, that was outside of your control. Not for things done by you, but things done to you. You've experienced trauma and evil at the hands of others that have left you feeling dirty. In your mind, if someone treated you that cheaply, then that must be how cheap you really are. It must be that you're actually that dirty, that unclean. But friends, Jesus' words tell a different story. And his work on the cross for you creates a different narrative. The leper left the presence of Jesus totally cleansed. And such is the experience of everyone who comes to him by faith. Nothing that you've done or nothing that you've experienced can sully Jesus. His cleanness is far more contagious than your real uncleanness due to your sin or your felt uncleanness due to your suffering. He not only cleansed the ceremonially unclean on the cross, he shed his blood to cleanse those defiled by sin, to cleanse our guilt and expunge our shame. On the cross, it's like Jesus and the leper traded places. Jesus was exiled outside the camp. He was banished from the very presence of God as He took upon Himself our sins and our sufferings. He was willingly exiled as unclean so that we might be cleansed and restored and forgiven and declared to have Jesus' very cleanness. The leper left the presence of Jesus as a leper no more. His identity was changed in an instant. And so it is for you if you come to Christ. What was fundamentally true about you changes in an instant. Your identity is no longer defined by your shame. Your identity isn't in your sin. It's in Jesus. 
the king. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Friends, our sins are many. Our shames are many. His mercy is more. No matter how deep your uncleanness goes, the reservoir of Jesus' purifying grace is far deeper. However vast your mess is, His power and mercy are vaster still. You may think that sin has stained your life like indelible ink, like black mulch on pristine curtains. But the truth is that as great as your sin may be, Jesus' capacity and His propensity to forgive far outpaces your sin. There's far more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in you. So friend, don't think that you're the exception. Don't think that you're the one who's just too toxic, too dirty, too unclean for Jesus. That is a lie. Look at the scene before us. Listen to the words of the king. I will be clean. Number two. Actually, before we move on, let me just note in verse four. Jesus instructed the leper not to tell others what happened, but to go straight to the temple in Jerusalem and show the priest that, that he was cleansed of his leprosy, to offer the gift required according to Leviticus 14. You may wonder, why did Jesus instruct him not to tell anyone? Well, friends, Jesus didn't want to be known as the miracle-working sideshow. He didn't want to be followed by voyeurs peeping miracles. He came that people might embrace him as Messiah and bow to him as God. And so he instructed the cleansed man to do what Moses commanded for a proof, literally for a, a witness, for a testimony to the temple personnel. And by instructing this man to conform himself to the Jewish law, the man would then give testimony publicly that the one who had authority to fulfill the law had arrived. Ritual purification was yielding, wasn't it? To the, it was like yielding the right of way as we merge onto the interstate. It's yielding the right of way to the one who could thoroughly cleanse through his very per person in word. Number two, there's hope for the outsider. In the second scene, Jesus entered the city of Capernaum. It's the base of his Galilean ministry. And there he encountered another outsider. This man's uncleanness was not physical or ceremonial. It was ethnic. It was racial. He was a Gentile. Verse 5 says that when Jesus entered the city, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. The situation is apparently desperate. The servant of this centurion, who's likely an officer's aide, was suffering under some sort of paralysis. You know, it's hard for us in 2021 to feel the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. But remember under the old covenant, God's chosen people were the children of Abraham, the nation of Israel, marked off by the sign of circumcision. To Israel, Paul said, belong the promises of the covenant and the privileges of being God's special people. By blood, Gentiles were outsiders. They weren't included as God's covenant people. Even Gentiles, friends who believed God's promises, had limited access to God. They weren't permitted past the outer court of the temple. There was a physical, religious, social barrier between Jews and Gentiles. But here the centurion was. Here's a decorated Roman officer, a hardened veteran soldier, desperate for the mercy 
of a Jewish rabbi. The ESV, our translation that we read from, translates verse 7 as a statement. But the construction of the original Greek actually indicates it was likely a question. And there's no punctuation marks in Greek, so we take our cues of, from the syntax of the sentence. So I think the way the NIV translated is probably correct. Jesus says, shall I come and heal him? He's asking the question, is this what you want? It would have been highly inappropriate for a Jewish rabbi to step foot in a Gentile's house. Jesus, sure, he ate with, with tax collectors and sinners, but Jewish tax collectors and sinners. Going to the centurion's house would have been way more scandalous than that. Jesus' question is essentially, what exactly are you asking me here? Are you asking me to come to your house? And the centurion's reply is essentially, no, of course not, right? I would never ask you to do that. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Clearly, as a military man, the centurion understood authority. Even though he was the captain of up to 100 men, he reported to, to military higher-ups and ultimately to the Roman emperor himself. When the centurion said, jump, his men said, how high? Why? Because the centurion spoke with the authority of the emperor. And so in the centurion's mind, if Jesus spoke and healed with the very authority of God, then there was no reason why physical disability should resist his authoritative word, no matter where Jesus was physically located. Friends, like with the leper, the question is not about Jesus' ability, but about his willingness. Would he help a dirty Gentile? Would he help this Gentile dog whose very presence in Israel was a reminder of Roman rule? Should this man expect any sympathy and help from Jesus, the Jew? If Jesus really is the Messiah to the Jewish mind, ought he not to, to crush this enemy of Israel, not to help him? When Jesus heard the faith-filled confidence of the centurion and his authority and power to heal even from a distance, verse 10 says, Jesus marveled. Almost every other time this word is used in the Gospels, it's about people being amazed by Jesus. But here Jesus is the one amazed by the faith of this Gentile. And so he turned and he addressed the crowd that followed him. And he took a shot across the bow of the ethnic and religious sensibilities of the Jews. He said, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found this faith. Beloved, we find in this Gentile Roman centurion a model of saving faith. Up to this point in Matthew, we have no clearer example of the type of faith that saves than in this Gentile. In verse 8, he acknowledged his utter unworthiness before Jesus. Friends, the Gentiles, the centurion seemed to understand that he had not met God's standard and that there was a certain uniqueness about who Jesus was that made him utterly unworthy to host Jesus at his home. 
I think is incredible. The centurion had not dismissed the reports about Jesus as the messianic myths of a religious fanatical group. No, he heard and he believed. He believed that the power of Jesus's word could affect a new reality. He understood that the extent of Jesus's authority was so great, it was not even necessary for Jesus to be physically present with his servant in order to heal him. All he had to do was speak the word. As my pastor friend Omar Johnson said, you expect at some point during this narrative for the Roman commanding officer to start acting like a Roman commanding officer. But instead, throughout, he acts like Jesus is his commanding officer. And it's clear from the rest of the scene that the faith that brought healing for the centurion servant was evidence of saving faith in Jesus. Jesus used the moment to explain this is a pivotal time. It's a pivotal moment in redemptive history. The inclusion of the Gentiles and the exclusion of national Israel as a majority. I mean, this would have been blasphemous, wouldn't it have been, to Jewish ears. Jesus is turning their entire concept of what it means to be the people of God right on its head. Verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says, in the kingdom of heaven, the very ones you least expect to be there are going to be there. They're going to recline at the messianic banquet with the patriarchs. They're going to participate fully in the great feast that pictures the age of the Messiah. Right? They're going to come from all over the world, from east and west and north and south, and they're going to share in the same covenant blessings as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And what about the sons of the kingdom? Those who belong to the people of God by birth. If they reject Jesus, they're thrown into outer darkness. Their destiny is the place farthest removed from the joy and light of the heavenly kingdom. They will be thrown into a place with so much pain and suffering that Jesus calls it a place of weeping and the gnashing or the grinding of teeth. Why? Why would the Jews be consigned to judgment while the Gentiles are welcome to the king's banquet table of eternal joy? Friends, it all hinges on what one does with Jesus Christ. Presumably, the reason that the Jews should expect separation from God is that they don't have the faith-filled confidence in Jesus that the centurion has. Instead of depending on Jesus, they depend on their pedigree. Instead of worshiping Jesus, they rejected him and crucified him and hung him on a Roman cross. Friends, don't miss this. Your lineage has nothing to do with your relationship with God. Nothing. Your pedigree and upbringing has nothing to do with whether you make it to the kingdom. Kids, teens, when you stand before God someday, you can't use mom and dad's religious credit. You're going to stand on your own two feet and you will be judged based on whether or not you have embraced by faith the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross and in rising from the dead. Friends, the headlines of this passage is amazing news. 
We Gentiles won't just enjoy the residue of Israel's salvation like crumbs that fall from the table, but we will be full participants in the feast if we've embraced Jesus Christ by faith. At this point, you know, we have the entire story, don't we? We have the entire story of Jesus to help us understand why he could make such a bold claim. Friends, Jesus, Jesus not only lived the life that we all should have lived, but failed miserably. He gave his life willingly on the cross to absorb the justice and the wrath of God that we deserve, that our sins merited. And he cleared the penalty of our sins against us. He died to forgive us and to restore us to God. Then on the third day, God vindicated him by rising him, by raising him up from the grave so that all who entrust themselves to Jesus might share in that eternal life, that resurrection life forever. So friend, are you resting in anything else to save you? If you would come to God, you must have singular Christ-exalting faith like the centurion who believed that Jesus' authority was so great that all he had to do was speak the word to save. Jesus said to the centurion in verse 13, go, let it be done for you as you've believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The voice who spoke the galaxies into existence, whose powerful word sustains the cosmos, literally just merely said, let it be done. And the servant was healed. So powerful was the word of Jesus in response to the centurion's faith that the servant was healed in that very moment that he spoke. Friends, as we saw last week, God's word, Jesus' word is effective. He healed the servant. He saved the centurion. This story assures us that there is hope for outsiders like us. Praise God. Number three, there's healing for his people. In the third scene, Jesus healed someone familiar to him. The first two were strangers. He knew this one. Peter's mother-in-law lies sick with a fever. Presumably the fever was high and the situation was serious. Matthew in verse 14 describes what happened in this rapid fire, almost matter-of-fact way, doesn't he? When Peter, uh, Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. And that's it. As with the leper, Jesus merely touched the woman, and her fever left so thorough was the healing that not only did the fever break, but Peter's mother-in-law was restored back to full strength in that very instant. She didn't need time to recover. Her full vigor returned instantly, and she rose and began to serve Jesus. Then Matthew notes in verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. Did you notice that? Once again, how did Jesus exercise his power? With a word. He merely spoke and kingdom power invaded Satan's domain. We're not given the details of the healings noted by verse 16. We don't know all the details. I think one of the, the delights of heaven will be to not only go deeper 
into a better understanding and a fuller amazement of Jesus' works that are revealed in Scripture, but we will also hear of the first time of the details of Jesus' miraculous works still untold. And then Matthew ties a bow on these three miracles in a surprising way. Verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. Normally, I try not to leave the thorny theological issue for the very last point of the sermon. Uh, but that's what Matthew did. So we're going to think about this a little bit more carefully together. Matthew says that Jesus' healing ministry is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Matthew gives us his own translation of the verse, it seems. He translates griefs as illnesses and sorrows as diseases. Certainly these, these words in the original Hebrew can mean those things. But most of the time they're translated more generically because of the context of, Matthew, of, of Isaiah 53. Which is what? It's the sin-bearing sacrifice of the messianic servant. So the question is, how does Matthew see in Jesus' healing ministry a fulfillment of Isaiah 53.4? Is he, is, he, is he playing fast and loose with the biblical text? Doesn't he know that Isaiah 53 is about the atonement, right, of this future messianic servant? Friends, I would, I would say absolutely. Matthew understands the context of Isaiah 53, and it's because he understands the context that he quotes Isaiah 53.4. Let me give you an interpretive principle to help you understand how Old Te or New Testament authors utilize the Old Testament. When New Testament authors quote or allude to an Old Testament verse, very often they are, they are implying the entire context of that verse in their quotation. They're not just pulling it out and plugging it in. No, they are doing good exegesis behind the scenes. So, he, so here's Matthew, and he's writing 30-something years after the ascension of Jesus, most likely. And he, he reflects on Jesus' healing ministry, and he looks at it through the lens of, of Jesus' atoning death on the cross that fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. Now, unfortunately, most of the time you hear Matthew 8, 17 quoted, it's by whom? It's by word of faith, prosperity preachers, right? Their theology goes something like this. In light of Matthew 8, 17, everything necessary for the healing of our bodies was achieved by Christ on the cross. God's ever, already done everything He'll ever do to make it possible for you to experience physical healing. So if you're not healed, it's not because God didn't will it, but because you don't believe it. Healing has been secured for us in the atonement, and it's ours either to ignore or to lay hold of in faith. Basically, what they're saying is Christ bore our sicknesses in the same way he bore our sins. On the cross, he took our cancer and our diabetes and our COVID-19. He died for our arthritis and our earaches and our kidney stones. Is that what Matthew is implying? I don't think so. Friends, this is not the way that Matthew employs this verse. Rather, he's thinking of the total context of this song about Isaiah's messianic servant. 
Matthew read Isaiah 53.4 in light of the rest of Isaiah 53, which is undeniably about the servant who bears the sins of his people. He's smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And Matthew understood that all human suffering is a result of human sin. Sin is the root. Suffering is the fruit. Not, not, not that you can trace all suffering to specific sins in a cause and effect way, not at all, but that the curse of death in this world came as a result of Adam's fall so that, so that all of our illnesses and diseases are the horrific result of human sin. Matthew understands that in Jesus' death and resurrection and his first coming, he laid the groundwork for the complete annihilation of death and sickness in his second coming. By bearing our sin, Jesus bore our sicknesses. He took upon himself the curse of sin in order to smash it into oblivion and release us from all the suffering that plagues us in this life. Matthew and the synoptic gospel writers present Jesus' miracles as snapshots on the camera roll of the coming kingdom. They function like a sneak preview of the age to come. In Isaiah, even, the coming kingdom was tied to the new creation. So Jesus' miracles were like flashes of that kingdom erupting into this world of sin and death. So what does that mean as we tie all this together? That means that Jesus' healing ministry was tethered to his eventual work on the cross. He healed during his ministry so that he might heal fully and finally through his death and resurrection and his second coming. As one author helpfully noted, the healings during Jesus' ministry can be understood not only as the foretaste of his kingdom, but as the fruit of his death. Friends, the question is not if our bodies receive healing because of the atonement of Christ, but when. The deadly mistake the prosperity preachers make is to assume that every blessing that Christ secured for us through his suffering and death are ours now in its consummate and final form. They wrongly teach that the miracles of Christ that forecast the coming kingdom are the normal expectation of his people now. Beloved, such blessings will be ours. They will be. One day we will live in a world full, free of disease. Free of a world in which you wonder if a virus lurks around every corner. Free of a world of cancer. Free of Parkinson's and MS and infant diseases and premature death. And how can we be sure of that? Because that world was purchased for us when Jesus bore our illnesses and diseases on the cross. He took upon himself our sin and by doing so ensured the removal of our suffering. This is the power of the cross. This is the power of and the mercy of our King. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that your glory has been demonstrated through your earthly ministry, not only in what you said and in your teaching, like in the Sermon on the Mount and your parables, but your glory in your works your glory and your miracles that pointed us forward to the glory of your atoning death on the cross and your, your resurrection 
that conquered death in the grave. Father, I pray that, there's, that if there's someone here this morning that as I preached resonated with the dirtiness and the uncleanness of the leper, that they might see in our Lord Jesus an all-sufficient and compassionate Savior who, who moves toward them, not away from them, who's not repulsed by that, by that sense of shame and for maybe even the actual uncleanness of sin, but rather moves forward to them and says, I will be clean. Oh, Father, I pray that you would, you would grant faith and repentance to those who need to turn from their sin and embrace Christ. And that you would help us as believers as we reflect upon even what you've done to include Gentiles as kingdom citizens to stand and be amazed. To sing, yours is the name above all names. You're highly exalted. We praise you that on the cross you took our sins and sorrows upon yourself. And in doing so, you bore our illnesses and our diseases so that one day you'll set us free from the curse of death. We ask, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Bring that day quickly. We want to see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.